Before you dive into this exciting episode, I'd like to let you know about the Squash Playbook, your tactical blueprint for success. The playbook is written based on the most common solutions I have given to the people I coach over the last 20 years. It is the ultimate how-to guide for any squash fan, and you can grab a free copy right away by visiting squashplaybook.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. Are you freaked out by that hard-hitting hacker? Frustrated with running out of ideas against the relentless retriever? Want to close out matches more clinically when in the lead? Or do you need some mental tools to overcome bad calls by referees? These answers plus many more have been brought together all in one place for the squash community. The Squash Playbook is a practical toolkit that breaks down over 40 scenarios that are most commonly faced on the court. Each scenario provides the psychology and the strategy needed to get a positive result. Each chapter wraps up with the top six key points to keep things simple and practical. The aim of the book is to transform reactive players into proactive tacticians. I focus on breaking down complex situations into straightforward, effective strategies for those high pressure moments in a match. So why not grab your copy now and step onto the court next time with a clear head and a set of strategies to win those matches you know you're capable of. Please enjoy the show. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Hope you are all well. Welcome to the next installment of the Squash Mind podcast series. On today's show, I welcome Gareth Moll. Gareth Moll is a wonderful sports psychologist. I've been following him for a few years. So he's based in Australia, and he's one of the most thought of and highly qualified and respected sports psychologists in his field. So I was really lucky and honored to reach out to him relatively recently. And within a week or so, he replied and we set these, this chat up really quickly. So a huge amount of thanks must go to Gareth. He is one of the, the busiest men I know and he has got so many different things going on that to be able to sit and have this chat with him in this busy time he has is, is just wonderful and a complete treat and honor for me. He started and formed Condor Performance in 2005 and is now the largest independent sport and psychology practice in Australia. 
The company is now branded globally and reaches athletes and coaches all over the world. So he decided to expand it. And, you know, with, with the, the Zoom and Skype and everything we can do now, the whole condo performance model just completely went global. And, and it's, it's touching the lives of so many athletes and coaches. And in particular, his blogs are a source of huge inspiration for me. And I've been digesting and following them for several years now. And it's really got me to be challenged and think about the way I coach and teach and really bring the mental toughness of coaching into into what I do and with the athletes I work with. So to be able to get someone like Gareth, as I said, is, is a real honor and a treat. And, and his business and company is just completely booming at the moment. And the success he's having with his athletes are, are just brilliant. So you can imagine we, we go into all sorts of topics in this chat. It was fun, engaging. He was originally born in South Africa, so there was a, a bit of a connection there straight away, which is cool. And he's very kindly, you know, offers to do quite a lot of work with uh, South African people and, and players and sports teams, quite a lot free of charge as well. And, and just, just the, the sign of the man that he is, you know, willing to do stuff like this and, and put himself out there. So we talked about his brand called Metuf, M-E-T-U-F, and the airplane analogy. It probably makes no sense now, but he he portrays a really good analogy of what it is and, and uses the airplane in regard to describing a lot of mental toughness. We go down the route of visualizations and self-talk and the stories that we tell ourselves. And we start to close off the chat talking about the future of mental training for athletes and, and where it's going and how it's continually changing. And you can tell he's such a deep thinker. He's he's questioning things. He's curious. Um, you know the traditional models of certain things around sports psychology that we think are, are are taken for granted and are set in their ways. He comes up with a few different concepts and a few different ideas, and we debate this as we go along. So, like I said, it's it's been it's been great for me. Really curious. Took loads of notes on this one, and even more exciting for me and hopefully for you is we've actually scheduled in our follow up chat, our second chat, because there was at least five or six questions that I wasn't able to ask because we ran out of time. We we spent well over an hour talking, so I think there'll be a lot to digest here. But super happy that there will be a follow up to this conversation and really investigating some of the stuff we didn't do. But in the meantime, please welcome Gareth Mole. Gareth Mole, welcome to the next episode of the Squash Mind podcast series. How are you getting on? Good, thanks, Jesse. Good to be with you. Cool. Uh, yeah, no, we we touched base. Um, what maybe three or four weeks ago, possibly early in the in the year. And yeah, for for one, I've been following you and your writings and and your philosophies for quite a while. So thank you for spending some time with me because I'm, I'm a fan of your work. I I do reference a lot of it. So yeah, getting the opportunity to chat with you is really cool. So thank you, firstly, for your time in this. And yeah, I've got a whole bunch of just very curious things. I'm I want to get inside your mind about. Um, but so for those who are not aware of you um, or your work, could you give us a rundown of say your sporting background and then your journey to this point in your career yeah so uh born in south africa um this bit's going to sound very similar to the exact same introduction i've given on the other podcasts so apologies if anyone listening has listened to those um born in south africa and grew up um following most of the sports you would associate with south africa pre-apartheid rugby union uh, cricket, a uh, little bit of golf, uh, that kind of thing. Probably wasn't aware of squash at all growing up in South Africa, I think, just because it wasn't something uh, that was um, 
part of the school sports program. Um, so, you know, my, my sporting world, you know, until the age of 10 was basically sort of cricket in the summer and rugby union um, in the, in the winter with a little bit of golf on the weekends uh, kind of thing. Um, never, I, I suppose like a lot of people who work in high performance and in coaching, I myself never achieved anything of note uh, on the actual, you know, uh, course or, or, or pitch. Um, and the reason I say that's probably quite common is I suspect there's, there's a fair number of people who um, realized, you know, far too late uh, that they would like to operate at that level, the highest level. Um, but of course, uh, when you're into your thirties and forties, the only way to do that is from a, from a coaching point of view or, you know, for, you know, for me, obviously from, from a sports psych, uh, point of view. So always fascinated by sport, always followed it very closely. You know, often say I read the newspaper backwards and only got mm-hmm. 10 pages in. That's how I sort of often describe it. So I had a very good understanding of most, um, sports and then went to the UK, uh, when I was 10, uh, to boarding school and uh, that particular school had a very good squash program. Um, that out of had England? a lot of squash. Yeah, so Oundle was the name of the school, mm. O-U-N-D-L-E, near Peterborough in Northamptonshire. Mm. And it had a lot of squash courts um, and a very good um, squash program. So squash was sort of regarded as, I think, the biggest individual sport at the school. So outside of the team sports – it was the biggest individual sport. So um, we played a fair bit of squash. Um, I never got anywhere near being one of the better players. Um, but I do remember in those teenage years, I do remember uh, really liking the uh, decision-making aspects of the game. I really liked uh, the fact that um, no two uh, games of squash were ever vaguely the same. Um, a couple of points would be maybe similar, but there was there was a huge amount of var- variability between um, every uh, game. And you know, if you compare that to a sport like swimming or competitive swimming or track and field, which was also part of the Arundel program, those to me seemed a little bit repetitive mm. um, in their nature. I liked the variability that came with, you know. Um, uh, hitting a squash ball, you know, against the wall. Um, so that's sort of my 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 sporting uh, background, and then sort of travel forward to uh, later years. Um, I went to the University of Leeds in the UK, uh, where I did my psychology undergraduate at a time when sports psychology was starting to be a proper thing. So we're talking about late nineties here. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back a lot further than that, um, it was, you know, particularly small to the point where there was big, you know, wealthy nations that had no sports psychology programs at all. Yeah. Um, so I did my psychology undergraduate, um, and did a few sort of sports psychology type of modules and very quickly worked out that, I sort of accidentally stumbled across what was clearly going to be my passion, my, my profession, because my love of sport from my younger years combined with my, my, my first uh, 
um, uh, go at tertiary education being general psychology um, made it very clear that I should combine the two and, and work to be a, a sports psych. And at the time of finishing my undergraduate, there were very few options in the UK. Uh, it's been quite fascinating to watch uh, how things have changed over the last 20, 20 years. So I was living in the UK, obviously, at that time, late 90s. And because I have an Australian mother, a South African father, um, I had uh, I wasn't particularly um, uh, concerned about doing my master's in whatever country uh, I felt had the best offerings. And at that time, so we're talking about uh, early 2000s here, Australia had amongst the best offerings in sports psychology masters anywhere in the world, um, partially because of uh, uh, Olympic funding from the year 2000 and a whole bunch of other reasons. And the UK had very few. So I was like, well, I'm going to stay in the UK where there was one or two programs, which had just begun where I could go to Australia where there's four established programs in a much smaller country. So I got on to a master's uh, at the University of Western Sydney and lo and behold, it turned into the last year that they ran that master's. So had I not applied that year, I wouldn't have uh, been able to complete my master's at at, uh, that particular uh, university. And then uh, over the last 15 or so, so I then graduated in 2005, which allowed me to then start using the term sports psychologist. Uh, it's a bit trickier nowadays. They've added another layer, which uh, I didn't need to go through. But the more, the, one of the most fascinating things uh, is to observe how Australia has slowly declined mm. in sports psychology, uh, whereby there's now only one master's left oh, wow. um, in Queensland um, from the original four. And the UK has sort of gone the other, other way whereby it's sort of going from strength to strength. And I, I, I'm not sure maybe the, the Americans would um, be uh, sort of somewhat put out by this, but I, I suspect now the UK is the leading place in the world uh, for advanced studies in sport and performance psychology. I, I suspect if you, if you look at, you know, the quality of the research that's coming out of, you know, places, uh, you know, around the world, the UK would certainly be right up there and has has left uh, Australia, unfortunately, in 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 its distant wake. In its distant yeah. wake. So uh, the the ironic thing about that is, of course, is when I set up Condor Performance, uh, the business that now I work for. Um, uh, in many ways, because the profession was diminishing, but the demand wasn't diminishing for what we do. In many ways, uh, my colleagues and I benefited from the decline because of course the number of competitors that we have here in Australia has dwindled to virtually nothing. So, um, you know, we in many ways, because there's 11 of us now, 10 in Australia, one in New Zealand, um, uh, two of us uh, endorse sports psychologists, the rest registered psychologists without the endorsement. So refer to themselves as performance psychologists. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've, I suppose, um, you know, given the decline of the profession here in Australia, we've, we've managed to um, become, I suppose, you know, the, the, the major player um, here, mainly because uh, the Australian sporting public don't have a huge amount of options when they're looking 
to work with someone with our particular set of expertise. Right. Okay. I see. Uh, that's there's so much to unpack there, and and it's going to lead me into into so many little uh, rabbit holes, and and yeah, really fascinating to to hear your opinion on maybe the UK is is taking over a little bit, and yes, you know the US because of maybe the amount of people doing it and stuff, they, they're going to produce some some interesting studies and 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 the sports psych side of things. But yeah, being on the ground myself in the UK for the last twenty years, and and especially later on when I finished playing pro and entered into research projects and masters in regard to you know mental toughness and squash. And linking mm. squash yeah there was there was there was some really good people i was able to touch base with relatively quickly and easily so maybe that's a reflection and then yeah also if we you look at that the, the olympic medal hall i know in 2000 where uh the uk was was pretty rubbish and australia were doing really well and it's pretty much in mm. the last 20 years so yes yeah um, but I'm, I'm curious to know a bit more about condor performance so um i follow you guys uh you get like i said you write some amazing blogs and and your philosophies are great can you expand how that works a little bit and, and the whole business model of of condor performance yeah sure so um I suppose a few little things is one is uh, we only use registered psychologists. Um, so uh, we, we're, we're totally aware that there are other professionals out there. Some of them quite reasonably trained uh, who provide, you know, mental health uh, or mental coaching um, advice. Um, uh, I suppose because I myself had, become a sports psychologist and and it's a fairly lengthy procedure I sort of felt like when I was looking to bring on board a second and then a third and then a fourth I suppose it made sense just to find people who had the same uh, credentials as me Um, and you know I suppose once you've established a brand what I also didn't want to do is sort of um, and and this would have been necessary had we ever um, decided to bring on board a non-registered psychologist. I didn't want to change the name of the business to Condor Performance, Sport and Performance Psychologist, and Bob, uh, <laughs> if, if you know what I mean. Um, because, of course, it, it's a, yeah, it's, it's illegal to refer to yourself as a psychologist uh, if you aren't one. So, of course, that means that when you're saying we are sport and performance psychologists or sports psychologists and performance psychologists, uh, everybody then needs to be registered in the country that they're uh, operating. So uh, that's the first thing. Second thing, I suppose, uh, that we really took seriously from the very beginning was uh, the fact that um, uh, many of the people who seek the services of sports psychologists are mentally well. That would be a good way to describe it. So basically, in no need for traditional uh, counseling or psychotherapy uh, is a word used in the UK or clinical psychology uh, services. Um, and the training in Australia is, is, is fairly clinical. So the thinking is, is that because we're all registered psychologists and therefore could end up with, uh, you know, a teenager who has uh, anorexia, we need to be able to deal with that. And that stuff's much more complicated. Mm. So, most registered psychologists are uh, very well trained in Australia in the clinical side of things, which means certainly from my experience that we were uh, somewhat ill-equipped to work with people who just wanted to improve their squash or their golf uh, or their cricket. And so I realized this in, in, in the infancy and in many ways overcompensated 
uh, or overcorrected, I should say, what I'd learned through my master's by really focusing on what we now describe as, as mental skills. So, you know, a, a psychological technique that you could pass on to a squash player um, who's absolutely fine, but who clearly performs worse when they're um, uh, under pressure or when they're playing certain critical points, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and as we expanded um, and I had, you know, other psychologists join me, it was a case of making sure that they were also um, uh, sufficiently equipped with what, what I would call the mental skills part to then go with what was already a very good um, ability to deal with, you know, non sporting related concerns should they come up and they, and they do come up uh, all the time. So it's been able to, and I suppose because we were combining those two, um, it gave us a bit of a, a competitive uh, advantage uh, wh- whereby I know uh, from experience that m- there was a number of people who came to us after having gone to other psychologists, some of them uh, sports psychologists, and the brief was just to help them with uh, their sport. And uh, in, in, in some occasions, uh, the, 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 the person that they originally were working with wasn't able to equip them with those uh, mental skills and, it, and often it was it was because they didn't know enough about the sport so I was very insistent at the very beginning that everybody that worked for us and this is still the case to this day um, have a a very good knowledge of most of the major sports so they don't need to you know be experts right across the board but um, you'd want to know more than the average sports fan to be in a position where you're charging fairly significant consulting fees to people who, who, who would expect to be able to use their terminology uh, with you. And I suppose because we, we're, we're a fairly large group now, relatively large, that also helps us because for some of the less popular sports or not as mainstream, squash would be somewhere in the middle – there's a couple of us who know squash very well. So when the squash players contact us, we work with them and that then takes off a bit of the pressure on the rest of the team, knowing a sport that they've probably never played, never watched on TV. Mm -hmm. And so it would be very, very tricky. Whereas, you know, major, major sports like soccer, um, rugby league over here, for example, we kind of all have to know, uh, more than the average sports fan, because we all work with athletes and coaches from right across that domain. So the only other thing I suppose to mention with uh, condo performance, and this might be a segue into some of the other questions, is we're incredibly process focused. So I've never set any goals ever um, in terms of I never said by 2021 I want to have a team of you know uh, 11 sports psychologists working for condor performance so we spend 99 percent of our time on on processes uh, things we have a lot of influence on and we occasionally say you know once a year it would be nice by this time next year to have done this or have achieved this but generally speaking it's very process uh, focus and that 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 emphasis on focus sorry emphasis on process i should say is is probably the most significant reason why we've succeeded because it means 
things such as the coronavirus when it came around last year, sort of we, 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 we simply were asking the question, you know, week one coronavirus, right, what are the processes that we need to be doing this week? We're not allowed to sit in the same consulting room as anybody else. Okay, that's fine. So we all had uh, fairly reasonable experience with uh, doing things via webcam. And um, so we sort of handled the whole thing uh, uh, fairly well. So that's that's the, the, the condo performance um, business model uh, in, in a nutshell. And, um, you know, part of me thinks uh, we're only just we're only just beginning, Jesse. You know, the, the next 10 years is, is probably uh, going to be where we uh, turn from uh, teenager to adult um, as a business. Nice. Again, so many good insights there and thanks for sharing. And, and yeah, I can see by the quality of the work you guys produce, uh, the bit of research I've done and you again, get your, your, your blogs all the time. You can see you surrounded yourself with really good people and, and, you know, you've set, set out your, your high benchmark or high watermark and people have to rise to that. And, and I love that. Um, and actually there was a question right near the end was, was talking about what do you see the future of, of mental training for, for the common folk. And, you know, so, so we might get into that later, but like, like you said, I think this whole constant concept, but this whole idea of mental skills training is is becoming so front and center in people's consciousnesses. And maybe this pandemic has, has helped make people aware that, yes, we've actually got to physically do some work on the mind. And the last point that we will get into as well is that whole idea about process driven. Um, one of my favorite blogs you wrote recently was all about that perfectionism and uh, mm. talked about become a perfectionist in your processes and that spoke mm. to me because I at that point I just finished reading Atomic Habits by James Clear mm. and literally those two things couldn't have matched up better so thank you for that work and yeah really really interesting to dig in there but um I saw a video about a year ago, um, your airplane analogy, the, the, the meta yes. concept. You sent it to me again recently, and I've probably watched it three or four times. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I'm going to signpost people to it, and I already have in the past, but after this podcast, I will. But could you give us a brief rundown of that concept? Um, I know there's no visual representation here, but, but, but mm. I think the listeners would really enjoy hearing it because I think it's a great part to have a chat on. Yeah, so the, the, the airplane analogy is is a kind of an evolution, Jesse, from what you would have come across, which is the kind of the, the pillars of sports science. So it's sort of now quite commonly agreed, I think, or, or sufficiently agreed that the sort of pillars of sports science, you've got the sort of the physical, technical, tactical, and the mental. Um, and that's, that's been around for a long time. Sometimes people will have emotional separate to mental. That's an error. It's part of, it's a subcategory of mental. And sometimes people will merge tactical, so on-court decision-making for squash with mental. That's also an error. Um, uh, although they're both psychological, uh, there's a benefit to keeping those separate. But the issue with those, the, the pillars uh, model, and I don't know where it originally comes from, is that it excludes the, um, the personal um, aspects. Um, so the aeroplane analogy took that concept and said, well, we, we like that we could focus some of the processes on physical, technical, tactical, and mental. We like that. Um, but we uh, feel like we need a fifth um, aspect that we could focus our process 
processes on. And that fifth one ought to be the most important um, because without this one, the other four become sort of meaningless in many ways. So the visual, um, which people can see if they watch the video, is uh, the main body of the aircraft is what we would refer to health and well-being. Um, uh, I think since the video was created, I think we've uh, updated our thinking. It was mental health and well-being. And now I'm thinking that in actual fact, the main body of the airplane is health and well-being because, of course, physical and mental health are inseparable, right? So if you if you find out that, you know, you've got some awful disease, right, that's a physical health issue, right? Your mental health is instantly going to be impacted, right? And, and the other way around as well. So people with mental health issues will often have a lot of physical uh, symptoms and consequences. So the main part of the airplane is health and well-being. Uh, another way to think of that is just the 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 aspects uh, of uh, being a person, being being a human being, being a husband, a boyfriend, a, a, a business partner, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and it's where you would find things like sleep, uh, nutrition, relationships, work-life balance, and these kinds of things, you know, uh, relationship with substances would also be in there. Um, and then you've got the four engines of the aeroplane, which are the four aspects uh, of sporting performance that we could improve. And we also liked the idea of the analogy of the aeroplane because, of course, these four, aer these four engines, I should say, are supposed to drive you forward. So the issue with that old pillars model is, you know, the house albeit it's very well built, doesn't sort of go anywhere. You know, though you build the house and it doesn't, uh, it, it, it just sits there. You know, okay, it's a nice looking house. Whereas the aeroplane uh, conjures up an image of, you know, okay, well, if we continue to improve the quality of these engines, although this aeroplane has only ever been able to go, fly from, you know, Harare, you know, down to Johannesburg, if we really really um, spend some time on the engines and looking at all the little bits. Maybe we can get it from Harare down to Cape Town. Uh, the same aeroplane, simply by improving the components that are within. But then if we accidentally, and that happens all the time, if we put all of our time and all of our energy onto the engines and we forget to look after the main body of the aircraft – so, you know, stuff like sleep and nutrition and relationships, then what can happen, and it happens all the time, is you get these four amazing engines attached to this dilapidated old bomb, and it takes off from Harare, and the engines want to get all the way to Cape Town, but the thing sort of uh, blows up, you know, just past Bulawayo because uh, somebody forgot to look at the main part of the the aircraft and so that analogy for us is very important because it ensures that the two areas we work on most frequently which is the main body of the aircraft uh, mental health um, as well as uh, the the mental aspects of sport so the mental toughness engine mm -hmm. uh, are both being uh, done um, or I suppose we're we're working on them um, in the uh, ratios that would benefit uh, that particular uh, athlete uh, or performer, which means sometimes we're spending all of the session time 
on their mental health um, because we've identified that's going to help them much more in not only their life, but their squash or their cricket as well. Um, people would be amazed at how much you can help an athlete improve by helping them improve their sleep, for example. It's quite remarkable um, without ever having to talk about cricket or squash, uh, for example. Um, and in other instances, we will not talk about the main body of the aircraft at all. So we won't mention mental health and well-being once um, because they really are fairly organized in that area um, and it's the engine that they it's the mental toughness engine that they need help with so in if we to take that analogy it's they they always take off they're fine they always get down to Johannesburg but they this third engine keeps packing up and you need the fourth engine to be running like the other three in order uh, for them to have any chance of reaching the destination that they want to reach. Gareth, that's just such a, a lovely way you put things in. And that's where I really warm to your work because you take something that can be very complicated and you can make it sound big and clever with long words and journals and papers, but you bring it to life in a really good way. And, and just on my personal experience, when I was playing pro squash, I saw some, what I thought were really good sports psychologists and they meant well, but they never brought it to life. They were, they were, showing or telling me things do it because trust me and then just do it but and that's a big mm. what squash mind is trying to be it's trying to educate players and trying to make them aware of things using analogies using graphics like you have and i know that's not obviously your whole business model but the way you bring it alive with that it's for me it's such a powerful video and yeah one that I'm, i am going to share and anyone who listens hopefully will share a little bit more and again i got to compliment you on even more analogies you're throwing in there harari to joburg and Bulawayo cape town that's yeah. uh <laughs> well I, I i i thought i'd make it personal so we have some we have some shared we have some shared uh, uh sort of uh, backgrounds uh, growing up in the southern the southern end of africa so uh, mm-hmm. i thought i'd just show off my uh, my intimate <laughs> knowledge of the uh the uh, the former Rhodesian uh, town names. Yeah, well, I was going to say you, you might have described Ears and Bobby pretty well there on that Harari Tipulawea leg. It's it's a pretty rickety old yes. thing I've known a few times, but that's right. <laughs> cool, um, but um, I, I'm keen to get down in the weeds here a little bit with you. I've I've got some things where I, I want to yeah just just hear your opinion on these things and and talk about them. Some of these are linked to me personally, and some of them. Mm. Are- concepts I'm trying to put across to my players. So the big first one I want to talk to you about is uh, visualization. And Hmm. can you expand on visualization? Where where do you feel it sits within athletes' performances? And do you recommend it? Where are you at with visualization? Yeah, so visualization, what the first thing people need to realize, and this this is a great way to refer back to the uh, aeroplane analogy, right, is so the, the visualization, the process is obviously psychological. If we're imagining, you know, hitting a, a boast uh, on our backhand without actually having a squash racket in our hands, that's obviously a psychological process. But the outcome, um, and we might talk about this later, the, the massive benefit of knowing the difference between processes and outcomes. Very few people do. Those who learn to distinguish them um, and 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 at the same time are aware of the amount of inf- uh, influence they have on one and and the amount of influence they have on the other generally benefit a, a lot. But the interesting thing about visualization is the process is obviously psychological, but the outcome or the thing that you're trying to improve is technical most most of the time, correct? And so most visualization is actually 
a uh, something aimed at the technical engine. Um, the biggest advantage of visualization is convenience. That's the biggest advantage. So, I mean, if we take the sport of squash, for example, it's a good example. It's uh, it's a it's a difficult sport in order to access the fundamental stage with which competitions occur. Correct. Compa- compare this to uh, cricket or, or or soccer, football. Uh, you know, all track and field. You know, uh, I've just spent some time with the family. We're playing beach cricket. You know, pulled a, a few sort of jaunty road speckies on the beach. We had nothing. We had a bat, a couple of old tennis balls, and I think we sort of had a uh, an empty crate of beer as, as as the stumps. Squash is a bit like skiing um, in that it's it's, uh, it's quite dependent on equipment and facilities, mm-hmm. and so any athletes from those sports are the ones who are really going to benefit from being able to visualize because of course when you get vaguely competent in visualization what that means is that you're not obliged to go down to the squash court i know some people listening will have a squash court in their you know office building um, but many may not many you know they might you know they may have I live in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales, where my nearest squash court is in Campbelltown, an hour away. Uh, can you believe it? So um, I'm thinking about building one in my backyard, though, which is rather big. But anyway, that's a, that's another that's a conversation for another time. So the huge benefit of visualization is the fact that um, I could improve technical aspects of my squash from the comfort of my own uh, home, um, and a lot of athletes. Um, incorrectly assume that uh it's not quite the same you know as actually hitting um a uh, a squash ball you know imagining hitting a squash ball um and that's just not the case uh the, the fact is is that you know mentally rehearsing yourself doing something um if it's done uh with a reasonable amount of detail and that's normally the bit that's missing if it's done with a, a reasonable amount of detail, then uh, the research is fairly clear that that can be just as effective as being on court. So I'm, I'm talking about 10 minutes of, you know, visualizing, you know, hitting a backhand serve um, and 10 minutes of actually being on the court hitting backhand serves. The research is pretty clear that both of those have similar outcomes. And of course, the other benefit of visualization, apart from convenience because you can do it at an airport you can do it you know whilst you're locked up in jail um for example is you can uh, use it as a way of varying your practice and we were chatting briefly before we started that uh, squash is 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 quite uh, varied naturally and so you're quite fortunate that the chances of squash players getting bored with practice is very low. Um, but for other sports where there is not so much natural variability, I'm, I'm thinking of things like swimming. I'm thinking of running sports, endurance sports. Um, then you can imagine the practice can be incredibly monotonous. It's the same thing all the time. And so not only is visualization very convenient, but for those sports and maybe for the odd squash player that is a little bit bored of always, you know, hitting a hundred balls, 
in the same way. It also provides variation to practice and variation is one of the most effective ways of staying motivated in an arena whereby it's very likely that boredom can, will, 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 will take place because, of course, one of the keys to success is repetition and repetition of anything becomes quite boring. You know, you, 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 everyone's done it. You listen to your favorite Taylor Swift. I know you're a big Taylor Swift fan there, Jesse. You listen How to your you? favorite Taylor Swift. How dare yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> your, your favorite Taylor Swift song, you listen to it three times a day for a month and you let me know how much you like that song at the end of that month. So repetition is a double-edged sword. And what we're trying to do in many ways is we're trying to um, bake our cake and eat it with repetition. We're trying to allow the repetition to occur because that allows us to establish muscle memory, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, vary aspects of the repetition so that we don't learn. So we don't end up learning to hate the very, sport that we are trying to improve on on that point of repetition um i don't know if you come across him a guy called Stu armstrong he runs the talent equation podcast i really in england massively respect his work and he has a, a line in a statement where he says repetition without repetition so can you create an environment for your athletes where mm. eating it but without actually repeating so so they don't get into the boredom factor but they're mm. working on their you know the neurons in their brain the muscle memory the the the, the, the myelin sheaths wrapping on their their synapses and actually you're doing the repetition but you're not making it boring and i thought that was a really good point i heard that a few years ago and and within the design of my squash sessions i'm really trying to i i don't necessarily want my player to hit 100 forehands down the line mm. I do in a way, but that's not reflective of that same forehand in a match when there's other factors involved. So the question is, how can we repeat repetition, but make it into that more realistic environment? Um, And then the second thing I just want to pick up on in regard to visualizations, and, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but... I've been lucky enough on these, these squash mind interviews. And, and that's what the whole mm. app is based on. It's all based on visualizations. And a lot of the visualizations on the app are very technical based. So like I said, you know, visualizing that forehand volley drop and I'll run through mm. all the details of the feeling, the grip, and we'll go through bit by bit. Mm. But the more I've spoken to some of these top athletes, what they're doing is they doing what I'm terming situational visualization. So someone like James Wilshop came on the podcast recently, mm. Commonwealth gold medalist, um, world number one at one point. He says all his visualizations were based on, right, so I've started the match and I've gone 6-2 down against Gregory Gaultier. Mm. I know him. I know the shots he's going to play. Then he'd flip it. Then he would go, right, I'm now 10-8 up. And so he started using visualizations less for technique, but more for tactics and feelings of certain mm. situations that would appear in the match. What, what do you think on that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. So, yeah. What you said there is definitely um, possible. So I should just clarify, you technically can visualize anything, mm-hmm. um, but the most common in sport is the visualization of techniques. Um, you know, when the, the original term visualization from a sports psych point of view was sort of coined, it was all, you know, related to uh, biomechanics. Um, so, of course, you can visualize anything. I mean, you know, and if we're to take a really wide view of what visualization is, um, you can visualize, uh, you know, aspects of mental toughness. If we break mental toughness, you know, down into areas such as motivation, emotions, thoughts, unity, and focus, um, one could easily 
use visualization techniques to improve their motivation. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I remember um, when I was uh, at school, I remember um, I worked out uh, very early on, this is a good example of a visualization from a motivational point of view, that uh, when the, the, uh, the, the young ladies were watching the 800 meters, my performance was enhanced, right? But they didn't always turn up. Uh, to the 800 meter trials. And so I very quickly worked out that if I wanted to, to run consistently, that when they weren't there, I had to imagine, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the good looking young ladies that uh, had been there previously to sort of spur me on. So they weren't there. I just mentally pictured them there. Mm-hmm. So you can use mental rehearsal right across the, uh, the domain. I, I suppose the, the, the tech tack or the two T's, the technical tactical, are probably the two most obvious. Mm-hmm. So your little story there about situational uh, visualization. Um, I, I mean, I would probably, um, I would probably not get too specific if I was recommending visualization from a tactical point of view. Okay. What you'd be looking to do from a tactical point of view is you'd be, is you'd be, you'd be trying to work out um, common decision-making uh, crossroad points, right? So, um, and squash is a, is a great uh, sport for this because, of course, you know, you're making, you know, uh, hundreds of decisions, you know, very quickly, you know, in a relative, relatively short space of time. So where I would potentially be using visualization to improve the tactical aspects of a squash player or the decision-making aspects would be in training, uh, ideally in pre-season. So when they're not going to risk going onto the court for a while, um, if there's such a thing as an off-season for squash, um, the the sort of the basic decision-making preferences, you know, so I'm not going to embarrass myself with my lack of squash knowledge, but it, it might be, it might be something, it might be something like, you know, for uh, a particularly tall opponent, okay, whereby the serve was much more likely to be a sort of a smash serve. So I might stand, um, you know, an extra 10 centimeters further forward to give me a chance of, of, of a volley return, something along those lines. Now, if you can go through these scenarios, but without getting too specific, so yeah. I wouldn't be wanting to. Uh... Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage Shopify is there to help you grow Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Um, have a tactical scenarios about individual opponents you know a player x um i'd want to i'd want i'd want to keep it to you know if blank then blank um and of course once you've gone through those scenarios you say well in this situation my preferred option would be this then of course if you then mentally rehearse that and you're literally imagining yourself in the position Mm -hmm. uh of receiving that information um, because, of course, for it to be a decision, you have to receive the information and then make a choice. Otherwise, it's not a decision. It's just a, an action, right? Um, uh, the more you do that, then the more likely it is when you then get onto the court uh, that you're actually going to uh, make the right decision uh, under under pressure, even though these things happen, you know, in a in 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 a, in a nanosecond people don't realize just how effective uh, rehearsal can be of any description, mental rehearsal, actual rehearsal, physical rehearsal can mm. be at enhancing, at enhancing that uh, uh, automatic decision-making process. The best example to convince people would be driving a car. Everybody has been in a car, right? Where they've made some amazing uh, sort of split second decision uh, without thinking about it. Um, but uh, that didn't just happen by magic. That was probably a consequence of having imagined or actually been in similar situations over and over and over and over and over again. And so your entire uh, receptive system is geared up to making that decision uh, a little bit better. So that's how, how I would be doing it from a, from a tactical uh, point of view. But visualization, uh, listeners should be aware, um, can be applied uh, to uh, all four engines uh, and the main body of the aeroplane. It's hardest for the physical engine. So imagining myself lifting some dumbbells Mm -hmm. isn't going to actually um, do too much in terms of my uh, muscle strength. It's not useless because, of course, I can actually um, improve the technique with which I uh, lift the dumbbell, which means when I do get hold of a dumbbell um, that I'm not – wasting energy on a poor dumbbell technique and all of that energy is going into actually improving my muscle strength. Mm. There's some seriously cool food for thought there, um, Gareth. And yeah, it's got, got my cogs turning and, and, and thinking about different ways to, to get those visualization processes across to the athletes. You know, I think it, it goes into the whole athlete centered approach as well. What's going to be most effective for them in different, in different mm-hmm. ways, how athletes are wired up and, and the way they see things, you know, there's examples of, of um, some squash players that want very detailed information about the degrees and angles of their elbow and their wrist. Mm. Others are way more about the feel and the visual representation of, mm. you know, I think we, we got to touch on those. Um, and yeah, no, there, there's, I'm, I'm, listeners will hopefully take a lot out of that. And just on the last point on visualization, I think 
you talked about that pre-rehearsal. So when you arrive at that moment, it's not a surprise. You know, you've been there. Yes. And I think that that's one of the big things when I've been studying it or listening to athletes talk about it goes, yeah, I've, I put myself in these situations so often you use that driving a car analogy that actually it's not a surprise and then nerves don't take over or it's a big shock. And so I, I really like that idea of, of can athletes, you know, go through those configurations of what might happen again, not necessarily the most detailed tactically, but just those configurations of going, Hey, I've been here before in my mind and I can deal with the situation quite comfortably. So yeah, I think you've touched on yep. some really cool points there. And just to move on a bit, one big thing I I'm really looking at at the moment and actually trying to do some practical work with some of the players is this, this idea of our self-talk and the stories we tell ourselves. So how do you, I, I, I would believe that you think this is a very important aspect for athletes' minds, that self-talk, those stories. How do you train this within your athletes or how would you go about that process of working on athletes' self-talk? Yeah. So if you'd asked me that question six years ago, I would have been, uh, very much, yep, self-talk is huge. Um, we all need to learn to talk to ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as the years have passed, um, I've become a lot more um, uh, behavioral or action-based in my approach um, uh, to the point now where I, I, I think, and I, I know some very esteemed colleagues, some who are in the UK just down the road from you who will who will uh, be shocked to hear this, but I I think that self-talk is is somewhat overrated now. Yeah. So this boils down to the basic premise that so as a human being, a very simple way to um, break down a, a human being's experience is um, actions, um, uh, thoughts, feelings, and physical sensations. So think of them as as four different uh, four different uh, potential. Um, sort of parts of, of being a human. And one of those four um, uh, humans have a huge amount of influence uh, over, um, uh, which is actions, you know. So basically, you know, um, if I said to you, you know, uh, I, I need you to, you know, you know, touch your glasses with your finger. And if you, if you fail at that, you know, you'll lose a million pounds, that, uh, that million pounds that you've got squirreled away, you would be pretty confident at being able to do that because it's an action. And there's some very fascinating stuff on uh, evolution that explains this very well. And it's the, the action aspects of the brain that have been around for the longest. And so they're the most uh, stable. Um, whereas if I was to ask you, you know, to uh, feel relaxed um, for 30 seconds, and if you fail at that, you know, you're going to lose a lot of money or if, ask you to think about your glasses and imagine them, that you were taking them off uh, or to say uh, the word glasses three times uh, to yourself. Um, and that had a big consequence. Uh, you'd be much less comfortable with making that happen. Okay. So the, the, the approach that we now use at, at Condor Performance um, if we can get a little bit psychobabbly. So the major framework of psychology that we now uh, use is, it's a bit of a funny name because it sounds very clinical, but it's acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, I like to think of it as acceptance and commitment solutions. Um, but basically um, what that uh, suggests or, or those who use this framework in their work uh, the way it operates uh, is one of being 
much more accepting of the uh, variation of human thoughts and feelings that could exist, okay? And uh, the commitment bit is all about uh, action. So really the, the full description um, is, uh, is acceptance of thoughts and feelings Mm-hmm. and committed to actions therapy, uh, which would sell no T-shirts whatsoever. So they shortened it to acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, um, uh, A-C-T. And that premise is very, 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 very powerful for those working in, in a motor skills uh, environment. Because basically what it allows us to do is it says, it allows us to, to say to those that we're working with, um, don't concern yourself too much with what you're thinking and what you're feeling right. uh, before, before, during, or after a squash match or a squash point um, because you're a human being and as, as hard as we try to think a certain way or to feel a certain way, you're going to fail a lot, right? You're gonna, it's just going to be impossible. But what we can do, very effectively through repetition is we can get you to do the same thing consistently, mm-hmm. you know? So for example, for um, sports such as squash, uh, we could call them start stop sports. Um, uh, one of the most obvious ways of doing that is through a, a pre point routine. So for the squash players I work with, they've got pre serve routines and pre receive routines. They're, they're slightly different of course, but these routines are entirely based on actions. Um, and so it might be wiping the hand on the wall, you know, could be, but at no point when we're helping them construct uh, these routines, these between point routines, do we get them to try and think a certain way. And the reason for that is because we now know that if we say to a, a squash player, you know, I, I would like you to um, say to yourself, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm an excellent squash player or, you know, just focus on the next point. Uh, even if you were to uh, repeat that and make it really important, the fact is it's because it's a thought, um, uh, it's, it's very vulnerable. Um, it's very unreliable. You know, the, the, the smallest amount of pressure and the thought uh, is going to go from, you know, oh, concentrate on the next point to, oh my goodness, you know, um, if, if I carry on like this, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a whitewash. So the approach that we now use, or certainly my colleagues and I at Condor Performance, I certainly don't imply that sports psychologists beyond the 11, 11 of us are fully embracing of this philosophy. What we're saying is this, is I want you to be able to play very consistent squash, thinking whatever you want anything so you could be thinking focus on the next point that's fine you could be thinking i'm a terrible squash player i hate this sport and you would still be consistent i would like you to be thinking oh tonight i'm really looking forward to that roast pork and uh and yorkshire puddings and still the uh obsession with processes and actions will will get you through and you can imagine the situation of, of a player under under pressure whereby they're having all these thoughts, many of them are negative and so on and so forth, but they're not um, 
they're not reacting to those thoughts. They're just observing them compared to a player who was told they need to think a certain way. You need to use self-talk. And now not only are they worried because they're match point, match point down, but they're also worried because they forgot to use the self-talk. And now they're worried because they're worried that they forgot the self-talk. And then they're worried that they're worried that they're worried. So we often say it's not the thought that's the issue. It's the thought about the thought that's the issue. Mm. So a very nice way for people to go about this is to separate actions from thoughts and feelings. Be very accepting, very gentle on yourself with the, uh, the, the quite negative and destructive thoughts and feelings you experience. If you're a human being and you think negatively and you feel terrible a bunch of the time, well, congratulations. That means you're genuinely a human being. And try to see if you can observe those. So we're not trying to distract ourselves from them. We're not trying to bury them. We're trying to notice them in the same way that you might notice variation in traffic noise or in maybe uh, temperature. You know, oh, you know, it's it's cold today. Okay, uh, it's much colder today than it was yesterday. That's the sort of approach that we would want to have with thoughts and feelings. And in 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 doing that, it then frees up a lot of energy that can be then put on the one aspect that we have a huge amount of influence on. A lot of uh, a lot of people in, in working in the sort of mental skills game would say that you could control uh, actions. I don't believe that that's a useful word. I, I prefer the word influence. But certainly uh, my colleagues and I have had a tremendous amount of success by essentially teaching coaches and athletes to accept thoughts and feelings and try and improve their actions. Um, so because of that, um, probably not the answer you're looking for, uh, I now am essentially saying to, to, to my clients, when the topic of self-talk comes up, uh, say whatever you want, whenever you want, because it'll make no difference to what we're trying to achieve, because it's the actions that you will depend on. It's the actions that will get you through. And let's not pretend that an action and a thought are one and the same. Well, that's, fascinating the 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 way you've described that firstly i've not heard about it described in that way you know that maybe the more mm. old school if you think this is like a new way of 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 thinking which is brilliant and and i love these conversations because it's, it's absorbing and getting me thinking and I, I love that you use acceptance it's actually a big part of what i try to do within the app so um there's lessons on acceptance accepting certain things that are out of our control but actually I've, mm. never, I've never linked it to the thoughts as well. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm getting to think in a way going, okay, how can I bring that acceptance concept to bad decisions, bad referees, um, bad equipment, bad opponents, accept it's going to happen, be prepared for it. But actually I, I think there's a whole layer that, that you're talking about. You're talking about welcoming that thought and accepting it, noticing it mm. almost in a way, inviting it in. So it's comfortable and, and, you know, you don't have to act on that thought necessarily. And it links to something that, that I spoke to someone the other day about. Um, again, another great chat I had with a guy called Simon Mundy. He runs the Don't Tell Me the Score podcast. And he said when he was working on his mind, one thing he, I think it was Dr. Guy Meadows who pointed him in the right direction. He was, <clears throat> he had to use a sentence of, I'm having the thought that, 
dot, dot, dot. Yes. So he would actually go, yes. oh, I'm having that thought. And it wasn't like I'm blocking that thought out and it's, it's, it's an enemy. It's going, I'm having the thought. I'm human. I'm, I'm bringing it into my consciousness. And actually, I'm, I'm just sitting with it. And he said for him, it really took away the power of the thought or took away yes. the actions based on what the thought he was having. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's called a diffusion technique. That's a classic. It's very effective. So, and that, that, that's, that's a great technique. So that is, you imagine the difference between, you know, I'm having the thought, you know, that I'm not feeling um, uh, that confident today mm-hmm. and I'm not that confident today and feeling that this is this immovable object, um, you know? So these, these, these thoughts, you know, and these um, uh, feelings that, that we have, course the interesting thing is that we're only ever aware of our own and so we many people out there would be like you know goodness i wonder if other people think and feel like i do you know and the fact is that they do um the only difference is some people are more open and honest about how they actually feel and and think uh, than others but yeah that's that's a a diffusion technique Uh, and i mean another nice one there um, which really lends itself to, to to bumper sticker uh, territory or, or, or t-shirt slogans is I am not my thoughts that's a, a very nice one as well so you know don't think that because you naturally think of the worst case scenario uh, that that means that uh, you're a, a, a really negative you know individual you know and I sometimes get people to just in case there's any skepticism you know uh, listeners can do to, can do it you know uh, say to yourself uh put you know put your sit on your hands and say to yourself you know i'm lifting my hands above my head but make sure that they stay firmly stuck underneath your thighs right but say i'm definitely definitely lifting right now my hands are above my head Uh, they're absolutely above my head and you'll very quickly learn that you can think one thing and do something completely different that's a really nice little technique yes That's right. So, of course, the habit that people get into, um, and it's a habit quite easily fixed, is that they think that the thoughts and the actions are um, one and the same. Okay, Mm -hmm. so they think, you know, uh, because I'm, you know, thinking about, um, you know, uh, food, you know, I have to go and, you know, eat something, you know, for example, because I'm uh, thinking, you know, that, uh, I might lose this match. So that means that I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, lose this match. I, th- I think there's someone to blame for it. I think, I forget who it was. I think it was Henry Ford who, you know, made some great motor cars, but um, uh, unfortunately came up with some. And I think he was the one that really stuffed it because he, he said, if you think you are or, or you think you're not, you're right. Exactly. And I that's not like true, it. Henry. Yeah. Then yeah, exactly. That I've actually had that quote written down before. Yeah. I thought about it, I'm going, it's contradictory to the stuff I'm trying to teach as well, which is when uh, we, we are not our thoughts. We are not that identity with our thoughts. We're different. Ideas. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad you said So he was implying if you, if you think you can, you're right because the power of the thought is so significant. If you think you can't, you're right because the power of the thought is so significant. That's incorrect. You know, I think, I can't all the time and I'm proven wrong by focusing on my actions, focusing on my processes and I can. And the other way around, sometimes I think I can do things um, and 
circumstances, you know, mean, mean I can't. So that's a very important. Um, mm. So I don't know where self-talk will end up. Um, my prediction is later on down the track is I think where it will be most effective will just be um, as uh, little internal reminders of things. Uh, ideally, you know, from a high performance point of view, we wouldn't need reminders for anything because everything's so well drilled. So, you know, again, driving the car analogy, most people who've been driving for some years never need to remind themselves to, you know, um, put the key in the sort of ignition, you know, like mustn't forget that. Mm -hmm. And that's probably a bad example because you need to do that, but certain things, you know, that you do instinctively. So I'm always slightly nervous about reminders Mm -hmm. from a high performance perspective, because I'm thinking, well, if you need to remind yourself to do that, then it's not very automatic. And if it's not very automatic, it's, it's vulnerable, but certainly on the way to things becoming automatic, I think the most, a relevant and useful aspect of self-talk and in my mind that is saying something to yourself would be a reminder of something so if we go back to what we were saying earlier about uh, tactical um, visualization it might be that um, you know you've mentally rehearsed a whole bunch of decision-making options but there was one that you just kept forgetting and so maybe before a match you remind yourself of that one several times in a very verbal way that that might that might sound like self-talk I think to many many people maybe it's got a place there but certainly um, you know from the work that my colleagues and I do we we don't spend um, any time at all um, teaching those that we work with to uh, think a certain way for the reasons already explained no. Well, thank you for sharing it. It has really opened up a, a, a bit of a school of thought in my mind here that that's something I'm going to be curious and investigate. I, I might I might hassle you a little bit over the coming weeks with a couple of emails and, and curiosity, but uh, it might lead me into my next little question, which is how do you approach debilitating nerves when it comes to competition for athletes? Because you'll see the athletes train well, they, their preparation is great. They get into a match in a tournament and just the nerves debilitate them. Where, where are you at with, with that concept? Yeah. Um, so nerves, uh, nerves generally are uh, a combination of, well, most likely feelings and physical sensations. Yes. So mm-hmm. if you go back to that concept, human being actions, thoughts, feelings, and physical sensations. The reason we like to have physical sensations separate from feelings is it allows us to talk about things like pain separate from joy. You may, you can see the difference there. One, one of them actually hurts whereas one of them is is very much a uh, an affect um so the way we generally approach nerves uh with most of our athletes uh, is through that acceptance and commitment um uh you know approach so if you were my client and you said i've got debilitating nerves um the first thing i'd say is do you have debilitating nerves or debilitating actions Um, so most of the time when we start to unpack it, you know, like, are you like, are you unable to eat anything for three days beforehand because your nerves? Nope. Okay. So, uh, so you're at, so your, your ability to consume food is okay. And when we really 
where really go through it. Most of the time, what uh, people experience would be uh, experiencing a, a lot of nerves and then the incorrect assumption that the actions that they have been practicing are somehow dependent on those nerves not being there, mm-hmm. okay, which is just not true at all. It's just absolutely not, not the case. So the way we would normally address uh, nerves would be to essentially get them into a practice situation whereby we would get them to um, uh, really emphasize uh, all of the actions. So it could be, you know, maybe it's a pre-match routine. So separate from a pre-point routine, pre-point routine would be maybe five or 10 seconds. A pre-match routine might be an hour, but again, it would be almost entirely action-based. So we're talking about listening to music. So that is an action. Um, Stretching exercises, you know, maybe going for a, uh, a walk, uh, you know, these kinds of uh, things. So what we normally like to try and do with, uh, you know, very significant um, feelings is normally try and get them to establish some sort of evidence that the feelings don't play nearly as big a role in uh, the, uh, the, the, their, their intention of, of playing the best possible squash as they think. Um, and there's little ways that you can do that. So one of the ways to do that is to try and incorporate some aspects of training, which are, which would produce at least some emotions. You know, it, it doesn't have to be much. You know, an ideal thing would be to sort of wait until you're really angry with your boss and then go and play a squash match. So you've got some natural emotions um, anyway. Now, so what we're trying to do is establish evidence that the motor skills, which are the actions um, of, of your sport, are remarkably, remarkably sturdy against whatever thoughts and uh, emotions that you experience. I would say without exception, those that are most affected by nerves are the ones who m- most uh, get caught up in the incorrect assumption that the nerves will um, make it impossible for them to be able to even hold a squash ball, let alone um, to, to serve it. So these acceptance and commitment um, uh, techniques will generally uh, work uh, very well. Um, and it's, it's, it's a long way from the work I would have been doing 10 years ago where, you know, I would have said to a player who presented with, you know, lots of nerves, right, how do we get you as relaxed as possible before uh, before a squash match or before you you compete and I know now looking back that some of those relaxation techniques you know um, work but ultimately we're sort of we're, in, we're we're implying something very dangerous aren't we by those relaxation relaxation techniques because what we're saying to them is and this is what they believe and this is our job to help them to not believe this anymore is through the emphasis on relaxation techniques, we are saying to them, Jesse, you need to be relaxed to play good squash. (laughs) And if you're not relaxed, you will not play good squash. And of course that's super dangerous because what happens if despite all the relaxation techniques in the world, 
you just wake up the morning of that Commonwealth game semi-final and you're just anything but relaxed. And, you know, what do we, what do we say now? Well, you're stuffed. You don't even turn up because you you only play good squash. The approach that we much prefer now is you can play very consistent squash regardless of what you're thinking and feeling um, at the time. That's, that's the approach that we're going with. And the really lovely thing about that, that, that model is that when you do use it with those who have experienced a lot of anxiety, for example, as you mentioned in your question, what generally happens is that is the most effective relaxation technique on earth because it's not the nerves that was becoming an issue. It was the nerves about the nerves about the nerves about the nerves that was the issue. So if when you're feeling a few butterflies in your tummy, um, you, you know, as you said very, very uh, well a few minutes ago, you know, you, you almost invite them in. Uh, you all, oh, you know, hi there, nerves. How you doing? You know, how's, uh, you know, how's calmness going? Haven't seen him, you know, for a week. You're in a, in a much better, you know, position. It's the, it's the first day of school here in Australia. And I, uh, uh, my, my kids have just gone to a new school and both the kids this morning in the car, they're like, you know, daddy, my tummy, my tummy hurts. My tummy, I've got butterflies in my tummy, my tummy. You know, I was just like, me too, me too, me too, you know? And like, nice. you know, like what, 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 what should we do about it? And I was like, nothing, nothing, nothing. Just notice it, you know? And sure mm. enough, you know, they jump out the car and, you know, it's, it's so, so much better, you know, as opposed to pull the car over, let's do some deep breathing techniques and some progressive muscle relaxation. And yeah, it might sort of work for a, a few minutes um, but ultimately those emotions are completely normal um, mm-hmm. and uh, want to be treated as such. That's again fascinating I'm, I'm absorbing here and there, there's so much you know other rabbit holes we could go into just just on that point I'm not going to go down this hole yet but it sounds like there's um, a level of awareness and mindfulness at a certain point you know and, and I'm very big on trying to fold mindfulness into performance and how we can get athletes more mindful and aware because then you are able to accept those thoughts, but you've been ridiculously generous with your, your time, your knowledge. Um, I've just got a couple more questions to ask in a very cheeky way and hopefully you can stick around for them. Mm. Uh, But yeah, for me, there's probably, there's probably seven, eight more really big topics I wanted to go with, but um, just in closing. So where do you see the future of more accessible and mainstream training for the mind and the general public? You know, you alluded to the fact that condo performance feels like it's in its teenage years. Where can you see, you know, what I believe is such an important thing we all need to do is working on our mind, whether it's in our day-to-day life or sporting performance. What's your prediction for the future? Yeah. So um, from a sporting point of view, um, if we can be specific to sport, just because otherwise it just gets too tricky. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the future is via coaches, so I've said for a long time that, in my opinion, the ideal um, client of a sports psychologist is a coach, not an athlete, right? I've said this for, for many, many years. So we still work with, you know, 80% of our sporting clients will be athletes and 20% would be coaches. The good thing is that 20% has risen from 0% in 2005, where we wouldn't have been working with any 
um, culture. So my prediction about the future is that it doesn't make sense. You know, if you take a team sport, for example, let's just say cricket, it doesn't make sense if, if I'm working with a cricket team, it doesn't make sense if I now have to work with each one of these players individually and teach them some basic mental skills. You know, um, even if it was sort of a lot of it was on, on video, I'm sure they can have some questions, you know, player one, player two, player three, player four, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what I think would be much more sensible would be if I worked with the coach of those 11 players, right? And said so basically said to the coach, you are, whether you like it or not, a mental coach. Every coach, every sporting coach is a mental coach. They just don't give themselves that label, right? So you will instinctively be trying to help them with their emotions, with their focus. You know, if it's a team sport, you will be thinking about how to get your players um, bonding more, etc. So all coaches, all sporting coaches are mental coaches. The only challenge that they have is a lot of them are very unsupported when it comes to how they go about that responsibility of coaching uh, psychological aspects. And of course, there are people like myself and, and my colleagues at Conor Performance where uh, we, um, we, we, we're now fairly confident in our abilities uh, of that area. So for me, the future would be a, a greater and greater number of coaches who are not themselves wanting to go away and become qualified uh, sports psychologists. Certainly at the moment in Australia, that's an incredibly lengthy procedure and probably we would never see them again. We want them to stay in, in the trenches. We want the rugby league coach to stay in the trenches and be spending the majority of, of his or her time with rugby league um, players. Um, but where they would really benefit uh, would be uh, if they had somebody uh, in the shadows um, who was uh, reminding them uh, of, I suppose, some of the science is, is, is a nice way to describe it, of uh, some of the science that can be done uh, when it comes to areas such as, you know, motivation, emotions, thoughts, unity, um, and, and focus. We are seeing a little bit of that, but if I was put in charge um, of the entire sort of system, you know, here in Australia um, uh, or anywhere, to be honest, um, one of the things that I would do is I would set up um, programs whereby as part of the coaching accreditation system, um, a coach would have to spend a significant uh, amount of time um, uh, with a, a sport or performance psychology partner um, and basically somebody who was able to uh, observe them coach, you know, give them tips. In many ways, it's coach to coach, mm -hmm. um, but I don't want it to sound like we're teaching them in everything. What we would be teaching them are the areas of their sport that they're guessing mm -hmm. uh, about and they don't need to guess because uh, a lot of this stuff uh, is now very well known. So that would be my prediction. Uh, and I suppose the other thing, which of course is where squash skills comes in, and we're certainly playing around with a few projects as well, is that not everything requires a person to explain it um, live, uh, whether it be via um, webcam or, or in the same place. And so obviously another 
uh, area which is happening at the moment uh, is uh, where a lot of content uh, is created. I am a, a little bit concerned about that because, of course, what happens with every area where suddenly there's a, a lot of demand is the really good information can get lost amongst the stuff that's very well intended, very well put together, but ultimately is completely, you know, uh, unhelpful. So, you know, I've been keeping an eye on, on on the explosion of this sort of content in the last 12 months during COVID. And the one thing that I would sort of, you know, often react to uh, is anything whereby uh, the implication is that a human uh, can control their thoughts. So I instantly have a bad reaction to that because I, ju- I know that's just uh, not that helpful. So I suppose from a from a content point of view, it would be good to see some organizations and some bodies created, which could, I don't want to say regulate because it sort of sounds, it's not, it's not really regulate, but maybe keep an eye on the content and maybe give a tap on the shoulder to anybody that was producing content that was at complete odds with what we know is the right way to go about sport and performance psychology in 2021. No, you make some some really good points there. And it sounds like the future is bright. So if, if, if those couple of models come in, the coach education or or that idea of giving the coach more CPD uh, along the field, they might not be that well-versed and great. And then, yeah, the online stuff and uh, a resource for people to tap in it at any time, at any moment. And but just on the coach stuff, yeah, for me, I think that that's such a powerful way you put that because the coach is in the trenches every day with their players and they know their mm. personal skills. And But you know what, if you could help a coach understand their their athletes more and you know get into their 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 personalities deeper and you know all you're doing is just signposting going hey have you thought about this method have you thought about that method you know that bit of of that self-talk you just talked about and how we accept thoughts and not necessarily even doing Mm. because you can imagine some coaches sit down and they might do stuff with their players and it might not be the right thing but making them more aware seems really powerful um and yeah again it's 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 super got me thinking and, and and churning so um in very final um final bit where can people find you so obviously condor performance is your website any social media shout outs where can people contact you if they want to yeah so your social media so condor performance so it's c-o-n-d-o-r like the big south american bird you know late uh, during a, a a future episode i'll explain the origins of the of, of the condor there there is a story behind that which is quite quite nice so condor performance is probably the easiest way social media i think if you just plug in condor performance to most um things uh, people can reach me on linkedin is probably the easiest way i think there's only one gareth j mole m-o-l-e on linkedin there's certainly only one that's a sports psychologist in australia that's for sure um <laughs> So um, by all means, you know, we've all, uh, we've all asked people to connect on LinkedIn uh, that we've never met. We've all done it. We're not allowed to. Guilty. Um, so um, more than happy for people to, to reach out. Uh, my rule uh, generally, just in case people listening, is if the random contact that I've never heard of is involved in sport and is, is somehow involved in sport, then I always accept. Um, if, uh, if they're not, then I'll, I'll often sort of think about it for a, a few weeks and then accept anyway. Um, so if it's, if it says, you know, uh, Thomas Smith 
squash coach from Bulawayo, you know, and if you see Tom say hi, by the way, he's a great guy. Um, then uh, immediately, uh, although I've uh, never met him in person, I'll, I'll accept because of the, the sporting uh, like other than that, uh, Condor performance um, is, is, is a better way because we've now grown sort of uh, fairly significantly, particularly over the last uh, couple of years. Um, you know, sometimes it's not always possible for me to uh, respond to people. And so by contacting Condor performance, uh, the email address uh, on the website and the contact us form um, goes through to sort of our admin and people and it just means that if I'm um, if I've hid myself you know uh, away somewhere to sort of churn out a few blog posts uh, they'll still get responded to whereas I'm not always uh, the quickest to respond to, to, to emails nowadays but uh, one of those uh, one of those two ways and, and I, I, I certainly can sense from you Jesse that we've probably only scratched the tip of the iceberg haven't we you know we uh, we could we so, could talk. We could talk about all of this stuff. So I, I'd be more than happy to uh, have this as the first of a series. Um, by all means, um, I think that we're sort of probably close to going past uh, what most people would have as their sort of ideal duration of, of a podcast. Um, so um, if we if we consider this as part one of a small series, you know, and we can. Um, we can have some um, uh, continued discussions uh, about the um, some of the same topics or, or different ones um, moving on, you know, later on down the track. And it just made me think of another classic going back to our previous conversation about thoughts. Another one, which I'm sure you've come across, which is, I think my favorite is that they don't hand out gold medals for who was thinking the best yeah. or feeling the best. Nice. Yeah. So remember that. So remember that. So remember that. So that's the great thing about sport is there's no, there's no, there's no sports where the winners are decided purely by thoughts and feelings. It's by who's thrown the furthest, who's won the most number of points, who's lifted the heaviest weights, who scored the most number of runs. And these are all actions. These are all actions. Mm. So they don't hand out gold medals for whoever was thinking or feeling the best during the Olympic final, they only hand out gold medals who was, who ran the furthest, sorry, the, the fastest who, who threw the furthest, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that's a very nice one that I think links the sort of acceptance and commitment approach to um, sport in a very succinct and a very obvious way. Yeah. Well, just on a very quick note on that reminds me lucky enough to have a chat with Laura Massaro, um, you know, world champion, world number one in the girls game. And she had that exact thing. She, she believed that because she trained better than people, she did more mindset work. She was had the belief that she deserved to win. And actually it, it went the other way. She had to go through a process of softening her approach and she didn't get mm. acceptance, but it was almost getting to that point where she was really did everything to the best of her ability, better than any top 10 player did. But she was, you know, I say only, but ranked seven or eight in the world at the time. 
And she had to come in this whole different approach of softening, softening what she was doing. And that's maybe another chat for, for another time. But mm. one big recommendation for me to anyone listening, please sign up to the condo performance um, blogs. They are brilliant. It's such a little treat when they come into my inbox. The first thing I do, I see them, I read them on my own personal level. So anyone wishing to understand more about the stuff, uh, I, again, your, your blogs are brilliant. I love the way they write. So big recommendation for me. And finally, Gareth, it's like I said, genuine pleasure. I'm really enthused and I'm, I'm buzzing and glowing that you want to do more of this because like I said, there's genuinely so many more avenues that I'd like to investigate. I think we, we, we're reading off similar hymn sheets in a way and you know, it can only hopefully be better for, for yourself, for myself and let's hope people enjoy what they've heard so far. Thanks, Jesse. Pleasure. Chat to you soon. Presence. Process. Persistence. The essence of Squash Mind. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 